Hello and welcome to Wavelength, the official Brave Wave podcast. This is your host, Mohammed Tahir, and I have with me John Lindemann from Digital Foundry. Hello, John. Hey, how's it going today? Fine. How are you? Not too bad. Just, uh, you know, working on some new projects, uh, doing the next 4K on a budget. You know, how about you? How's it going over there? I'm good. It's it's really the weather is really awful, and um, <laughs> I know everyone. Everyone's complaining about summer, and uh, I, I I sympathize with people who, especially in Europe, who normally don't have ACs everywhere, uh, right. because where I live in Kuwait, it's just you have just uh, ACs everywhere, really good ACs. But even then, you have to, right? Yeah. And but like the few minutes that I have to walk outside, it's just it's just hell. It's it's it's, it's today it's it's forty nine degrees when I got oh, into the car. Oh I just gosh. went inside, I turned the car on, blasted the AC, and then just went outside because the leather seats were way too hot for me to just sit. And I just had to like <laughs> wait outside because even though it's like forty nine degrees, it's it's cooler than staying inside the car. So it is a little bit insane. <laughs> Um, Do you have a garage for it, or uh, no, no? We just have shades. Uh, that, oh, that, okay. That's that's the most common uh, thing, which is funny because you would think that people would adopt a better way to put their cars in something cooler than shades. But yeah, it's 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 not that uh, nice out there. So this is episode 11 and it's been a while since uh, we recorded a new wavelength podcast uh and since the last time we recorded um i just want to talk quickly about the stuff that we did at brave wave so since the last time we recorded we released ninja gaiden the definitive soundtrack volumes one and two which includes the soundtracks to ninja gaiden one and two and three on the nes and also the arcade game uh, which is interesting because there is n- n- a lot of people, even Ninja Gaiden fans, didn't listen to it. And I think it has a couple of really, really good tracks. And uh, it's it's suppo- the vinyl is supposed to be shipping really soon. Um, uh, it, it, it was late just a little bit for some production uh yeah, no, it looked it looks it looks great. And didn't uh the those soundtracks like sort of hit the charts on Amazon in Japan pretty well? Yeah, interestingly, because like we number did number ninety six uh, or something. Yeah, and I, I think I think it went to number one for the game soundtracks, which is oh, wow. interesting because we made a special Japanese edition. So for the if you go to our bandcamp and buy the CD, so volume one is by itself, which has Indigarden one and two. And volume two is by itself, which has sorry, volume one has Ninja Gaiden one and the arcade game, and volume two has Ninja Gaiden two and Ninja Gaiden three. But for the Japanese release, we just did a, a, a like a complete collection kind of thing where it has all the CDs, and we didn't do a Japanese vinyl, only a Japanese CD. And um, we had uh, an essay by Ray Barnholt from Retronauts uh, and. Uh, we had Alex, my business partner, and KG, the composer himself, translated to Japanese. We had like the full interview that's in the English booklet. We just put the original in Japanese. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a uh, an actual Japanese release and awesome. I like that we did it. I wasn't sure if it's gonna sell, but I'm glad that people are into it. Um, 
According to Alex, vinyl is still not really that big in Japan, but CDs are, are good, so it's good. It's kind of interesting, actually. I was just um, I finally played all the way through the third game uh, a few weeks ago with a friend of mine, and uh, man, it's really hard, obviously, but it's a, the music really stood out again, and I've I had forgotten the way that he used uh, the I guess the PCM channel on the NES along with the synth synth to sort of create that really like kind of rich sound and the percussion that you get in that game. It's very different sounding from a lot of other NES games. I think I really, I really like the sound of it. Yeah. I think my favorite thing about the NES uh, compared to other eras or consoles is that like when you listen to games by Tecmo and games by Capcom and games by Konami, you can clearly see that, difference in their style yeah that's that's a really good point to me the super nintendo has distinctive ballads just in general but the nes it's the one where every publisher because every publisher they have their own sound team and sometimes it feels like they almost work in a vacuum because they release games on a rapid schedule and they have to finish stuff so fast that they don't i think that they don't have the time to just sit down for a minute, listen to all the other games, and then like get some knowledge and move from there. What usually happens is that they build their knowledge from the games that they make. So KG, uh, like if you listen to his games, like Ninja Gaiden, uh, if you listen to like Captain Tsubasa and then Ninja Gaiden One, like you see a really huge uh, jump in, in in quality and just uh, the use of instruments in general, and then. You see Ninja Gaiden and then Captain Tsubasa 2, which came after Ninja Gaiden, and it just sounds really, really good. And it sounds actually a lot like Ninja Gaiden. So a lot of these uh, NES composers, they evolve within themselves instead of like just uh, uh, like being inspired from people around them. Uh, they are usually impressed, of course. Uh, KG told me that he really wanted something like VRC6 back then, but he couldn't get that approved. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it's still really um, amazing that um, uh, you can really, you can feel that the, the composers or the companies had a strong sense of identity. Yeah, it's actually kind of a thing that uh, also applied, I think, to their arcade games, where, you know, each company had their own, like, arcade sound hardware. So you'd listen to a Konami game versus a Capcom game, and they were very different. And it was the same with their NES games because of the way the composers worked and programmed for the system. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like you said, on Super NES, I mean, Nintendo provided, I think, a lot of default samples to use. And a lot of companies just went to the library and made it work. But then you still had unique examples. I mean, like, you look at what Rare did with Donkey Kong Country games, for instance. I mean, David Wise, like did all of that stuff from scratch and really created a soundscape on that system that really doesn't sound anything like any other game on there. But you're right. Once you move away from the synth kind of stuff, it does start to homogenize a little bit, at least until we get to the digital recordings where you could do whatever the heck you want, you know? <laughs> yeah. And um, I really like working on these uh, soundtracks, these old soundtracks, just because it, it I mean, uh, listening to them by by themselves or, or just playing the games, it's still an amazing experience. But when we work on the soundtrack, we're forced to just spend a lot of time just listening again and again and again. You know, finding tracks that weren't used before, stuff like that, and just makes you. It either makes you really appreciate the soundtrack or it makes you hate it. And so far, <laughs> thankfully, I, I never got to hear the soundtrack that I worked on. Awesome. Uh, and actually, with Ninja Gaiden, I really don't have a lot of experience with Ninja Gaiden Three. So this game made me 
appreciate its soundtrack, which not a lot of people like. Like a lot of people don't like either the game or the soundtrack itself. Um, I think they're both good. Yeah, I don't think so. I think to me, Ninja Gaiden, the, the original Ninja Gaiden is probably my favorite from the bunch. But I do like Ninja Gaiden three a lot. Yeah, I can I can dig that. That's for sure. So um, aside from Ninja Gaiden, we shipped uh, our last original album that we released, Dugo. We uh, made CDs on vinyl, and vinyl finally shipped, and uh, it comes uh, um, with uh, like a postcard with like a photo and a composer signature at the back for people who wanted unlike our game soundtrack vinyl i don't think we're gonna be pressing this one again just because solo albums are challenging to um just manufacture on vinyl so right we, we did 300 and if if, if if anyone is interested in in, in in that kind of in that music and that style you can just listen to the whole thing on Bandcamp or Apple Music, Spotify, whatever you want, and then um, maybe place an order. So uh, that's for the stuff that we released. And um, I was hoping to talk about some of the stuff that we're working on. We will hopefully announce something soon, but I can't say that it's uh, it's a totally different uh, console, totally different sound, um, totally different kind of games, and um, something I personally didn't think I would be working at. So working on so i hope we'll be able to announce it this month maybe july maybe august hopefully soon so that's it for brave wave basically and uh, what about you john what are you doing with uh, df retro with just everything you're doing it's a lot oh well yeah keeping pretty busy over here on the retro side um but i just did a little sort of a little retrospective on the super nes which secretly it was like it was a way to one talk about the system, but also buy me time for the next episodes because that was kind of a quicker one to put together. <laughs> but uh, the next ones I'm working on uh, is obviously Soul Reaver, so Legacy of Kane. I'm working with some of some of the guys that are really active in the community that know a lot about the game, so they're kind of uh, con- it's going to be the first episode where I have somebody essentially contribute to it. And we're going to see how that goes because it could be interesting because, you know, I wanted to tap into some of that extra knowledge surrounding the history of like all the missing because, you know, the game is not finished. It's missing a lot of content. They basically cut out a third of it. And these guys have spent years like basically hacking through it and discovering what was missing. And, you know, I don't know all of that stuff off off of my head. So it's good to get that involved. And also, you know, the stuff with Silicon Knights and the legal stuff that's also kind of interesting when it was like they were working on a Kane sequel and Soul Reaver started out as something else entirely and, you know, that kind of thing. So we'll see where that goes. Then after that, I'm doing Doom. Uh, the console ports, I'm focused on the official console ports of Doom. There's a lot of them, but I want to, you know, look at the, the, the pros and cons of each, really trying to explore them. I've already been talking to... Uh, the guy that was responsible for programming the infamous Saturn version, which is quite, it's a terrible version, but there's a good story behind that. And we'll see if we can get in touch with anybody else on that, but it should be, should be a lot of fun beyond that. I mean, I'm just thinking about other episodes I want to do. I was kind of inspired to maybe do an episode on like super NES versus game boy advance because they ported so many games over to that thing. And you always hear oh, the game boy advance versions suck. Right. And it's like, you know, maybe I could finally show in a video, like, what went wrong with each port or, like, 
the areas where they might have an advantage, but in general, maybe not, you know, because there's a lot of variation in the quality of GBA ports. So, you know, that kind of thing might be interesting. Is your schedule weekly or like every other week? No. Oh, for DF Retro? Yeah. I wanted to do it. I try to I try to be bi-weekly, and it's mostly been hitting that, but mm. with the rest of the digital foundry work sometimes it just eats up too much time, you know, because that's obviously the main focus of the site. And I can't get it done in time. It just depends. Some episodes take longer than others. The Super NES one was like a two-day project. The Metal Gear thing was like five days. I still think it's amazing. I mean, even bi-weekly, sometimes I feel like, like, Jesus, this is way too soon. Just not too yeah. soon for me, too soon for you <laughs> as, as someone who does it. Just because like, yeah. I look I look at something like the quick episode of just anything that has a lot of ports. And I just think, how do you even do something like this? Because it's just, it, 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 I mean, I can't, I do have an idea because I am involved <laughs> in something that, you know, you need to do a lot of research. You just oh, yeah. do a lot of writing and then you have to just... Uh, Write your own script, know what to cut and what to include and what to not include. And I assume you do your own video editing or is that on someone else? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, for all of these episodes, everything I put out is 100% what I, you know, I do it all from scratch. Yeah, this is insane. So it's, it's usually, it starts by playing, I, I start by playing the games again and capturing while I play. And the whole time I'm thinking in my head, like, okay, what do I want to do for this episode? And then while I'm playing and capturing, I'm also kind of bouncing back and trying to write the script. So I'm pretty much just coming up with the concept of the episode from that point. And then once I have something kind of solid there, then I, you know, I either film it or just do voiceover recording, depending on what, you know, what works for the episode and how much time I have since it takes longer to film. But filming also is useful because you can kind of fill some gaps Sometimes, like if there's a scene where you you want to talk about something, but you don't really have good video footage to show there, if you just film it, it kind of fills the space. And I like that. So, I mean, you know, it's pretty much just getting all the assets, recording all the voiceover, and then dumping it all onto the PC and just editing until it all comes together. And, you know, that takes a while to do. And I guess for some episodes, I'll do like, uh, I'll fully produce maybe half the episode. And then, and then I get back to writing and I finish the script and then, cause I need to like do it in chunks, like trying to write the entire script at once, especially for this, like the Metal Gear episode, it was like 50 minutes long. It was just too much to do at once. So I had to like kind of break it up into chunks and tackle it a little bit at a time until it came together. That's amazing dedication. And, um, I think the thing about video, uh, maybe that's a segue into our maybe main topic. Uh, yes, is that uh, video is really demanding. Yeah, and <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do photo editing, and I used to think that what I do is really at the at the bleeding edge. But whenever I see anything about video, the scary thing about video is that if you have eighteen cores, the app will take advantage of them. Oh yeah, it'll use every one of them. <laughs> yeah, and it just makes you think. Well, okay. I'm, I'm gonna have a really good um, desktop belt. You could like get six cores, eight cores, ten cores. But when it's time to get a laptop, it could be a challenge uh, because um, I mean there are stuff with uh, like 
actual desktop class uh, quad core uh, processors, but they're really chunky and heavy and um, usually they don't really have good aesthetics and design. No. So what happened with me is that uh, I don't do video thankfully, because uh, that would just drive me crazy. Because the process of just wanting to get a laptop that strikes all the points, like everything that you want, is quite a challenge. And uh, in the past, I used to just get uh, a MacBook, and I don't really like big laptops, so I used to just get the 13, the 15. And at the time, I didn't really do much uh with like photo editing, I just had a 16 megapixel camera, which is actually, uh, it's, it's a lot of resolution, but uh, yeah. um, I could just utilize whatever I have. And I think I did a mistake by buying the Sony A7R2 because it's a 42 megapixel camera, which is something like, it almost has an 8K resolution, <laughs> okay. which... If if you don't have it, you would think it's amazing. You know, it's a lot of resolution, and like if if you take photos where maybe you want to crop something out, you would still end up with tons of resolution. And this is why I bought it originally. I had a Fujifilm X100T. It's a fixed lens camera. I really liked it because I have been trying to get into photography for something like ten years, and I always find stuff that make it really just annoying for me. And I tried. DSLRs and they're the most user unfriendly thing you could try because they just have a lot of uh, dials with with like nothing on them. You just have to figure what like what what is an aperture, an ISO, and shutter speed. And what I like with the Fuji is that um, it's a very simple camera. You can't change the lens and everything is just clearly marked on it, so it's easy to just uh, actually learn photography. Uh, like if you want to go a step beyond iPhone, so if, if you want to just learn some of the technical stuff. Uh, and I really like the Fuji. Uh, it's small, it's, it's lightweight, it's, it's a lot of fun to shoot with, but uh, I noticed that when I go back to editing on Adobe Lightroom, um, some photos just, I mean, some of them just need a lot of cropping. And that is not the fault of the camera, of course. That is my fault That because it's my composition that wasn't really... Uh, good at the time when I was shooting. And when I do some crops, I notice that the resolution drops a lot, which means if I want to do prints, which is something I like, um, I would end up with photos that don't really have a lot of resolution, which means it would be a little bit difficult to blow them up real big. So I thought, okay, maybe it's time to get a camera with a lot of megapixels. Right. And I I mean, I want to say I did my research, but when I uh, I, I like the new Hasselblad camera, it's a medium format camera. Uh, it's something like 50 MB, 50 megapixel, which is a lot, but it's also 10,000 bucks, which is <laughs> way too much oh, and out yeah. of my budget. And I mean, I know that I don't really, uh, I don't even understand medium format. So I thought, well, let's just find a, a full frame camera and I looked around and I found uh, the Sony A7R2 and what I like about it is that it's mirrorless which means uh, it can adopt a lot of lenses from other manufacturers like even even lenses of other digital cameras like uh, Nikon, Nikon, um, Canon, even Leica and I like the idea of a system that 
Most of the time, I'm going to be using Sony lenses. Uh, but if I want to use any old retro vintage lens, I would be able to do that. And uh, of course, what drew me the most is that it has uh, 42 megapixels. So I went from 16 to 42. But what happened is that before I bought the Sony, I was just shopping for a laptop. And Microsoft had just announced the Surface Book with performance base. Oh, yes, of course. And I really liked it. I like the design. I mean, I know that I can get something better with uh, a lot less money, but I just like the idea of a laptop with something like 12-hour battery life. Um, and uh, if I needed to do photo editing on it or uh, audio editing or anything like that, I would still be able to do that because it has a really good uh, GPU as Microsoft said, and I think I was sold on just their marketing because uh, I, I saw that Apple didn't do something that I like uh, or they didn't do much uh, to draw me in. Right, right. And um, I just got the Surface Book, and I really liked it at the time, but I was using just a Fuji film camera, which means I was only editing 16 megapixel photos. So when I yep. bought the Sony camera, I took photos, I took them back to Lightroom on my desktop. They're just amazing, beautiful. I noticed that when I edit on the go, it was slow. Those 8K images are so, they're stressing the CPU to the point where even just moving the, the the cursor around, like just moving around the image, it's just stuttering all the time, just because yep. it's trying to just process everything. I have tons of edits, and it's just trying to move everything. And I realized, okay, this GPU with this particular processor, which is a dual core processor, it's not quad core, which is something Microsoft didn't really um, uh, say. I only found out when I uh, ordered it because they just say like, it's an i7 processor, but it's a, it's a good processor. And I just thought, well, exactly. for the price is going to be quad core, but it's not. So now I spent a lot of money on, on, on the laptop that can't really help me with the one thing that I wanted, which is photo editing on the go. And um, I tried I tried to just convince myself that it would be fine, but it just really annoyed me. It's, it's, I think it's a good laptop, but uh, for my extreme demands, I think it was just a little bit too much. Um, yeah, I think so. So then I just uh, I got the MacBook Pro, uh, the latest one that Apple just announced with the KB Lake processors. And uh, a good thing about the 15-inch MacBook Pros, and I just noticed this, is that Apple has a 13-inch MacBook Pro, but I don't know if I want to call it Pro because it's not quad core and it doesn't have a, like a dedicated GPU. So yeah, right. I mean, it's better than the 12-inch, but it's it's just a regular laptop. It's the Mac MacBook Prosumer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it's. I mean, I I like the 13-inch size, but it's just uh, doesn't have the power you need. Exactly. So I went with the 15-inch, which thankfully has a quad-core processor, um, and uh, it has a GPU. It has an AMD GPU that is about as good, just slightly less powerful than the uh, the one on the Surface Book. Uh, the one on the Surface Book is uh, the GTX 
965M, which I think is is like less powerful than that 1050, whereas the MacBook one is something Radeon. I don't really know much about AMD cards, but according to the internet, it is almost the same as the one on the Surface. But I think the biggest thing about one on the MacBook is that it's pushing less pixels because the resolution of the screen is less than the resolution of the uh, Surface Book uh, screen. And uh, it has a quad-core processor, which would help a lot. Like, even when I played a few games, like Endless Space 2 and Civilization, I can see the frame rate is much, much better than the Surface Book. And uh, the device itself is not as noisy as the Surface Book. So... Using the MacBook Pro, I, I, I've been I've been using um, just Apple uh, desktops and laptops since 2009, but I kind of uh, went back to Windows last year um, just for Lightroom, just because I noticed that uh, everything I have is really slow with Lightroom. And now I'm going back to Apple with the laptops, and I just really like having a quad-core laptop in a really slim design. Uh, it is really, really, uh, even though it's 15-inch, and I usually just don't even like the idea of uh, uh, traveling with a 15-inch laptop, it's really slim and thin, and uh, as much as I don't like Apple's obsession with thinness, I <laughs> do appreciate it in laptops because it really does make a difference. Uh, I think with phones, it could be insane because you reach a point where like too thin and yeah and it hurts the usability like you can't hold it like it just slips all the time yeah. which is what happens with me and the iphone but uh, you're sacrificing too much to get there and it's not worth it yeah yeah so the funny thing is now i have a really amazing laptop it does everything i want like all these 8k images all the edits everything is super super fast and then um, i don't know how i got into an audio editor called the rx6 which is like it's a well-known uh, noise removal tool and when I was like applying some stuff, I noticed that it's using all a CPU and like a light bulb in my head just turned on, made me think, hmm, I wonder what it would feel like to have like a six core or an eight core laptop. And then I just immediately squashed that idea because if I just give it a little bit more room, then I'm just going to see setbacks in my laptop, even though it's really good, nothing is wrong with it, but um, yeah, it just made me realize that some apps really make you think you want more uh, cores. It's an interesting thing you mentioned, actually, because uh, so my desktop CPU is a six core, and uh, I'm using right now a GTX 980 Ti in there. Uh, so the bottlenecks sort of vary depending on the part of the project I'm at, right? So like when exporting as of late, when I'm dealing with 4K video, I found that the graphics card actually becomes the limiting factor. It maxes out the six gigabytes of VRAM. If I, if I do a lot of After Effects and like a lot of like uh, you know, transitions and other, you know, little th- tricks like that with the video, and then I try to export the 4K video, it maxes out the GPU and it often causes uh, rendering failures and it just crashes it so I can't export the movie. The way around that is actually to disable the CUDA uh, feature and just render with software, but then it takes like three times as long to export and it's just really slow to deal with. So we're at this point then where like, you know, my CPU is no longer the bottleneck. It's the graphics card. So there's always like, you're always kind of like stacking up all these different components to find, okay, where's the weak point now? And it's going to depend on where you're at in the project as well. So, you know, 
I have discovered, however, the glory of using ProRes because uh, previously, what is, that? What is ProRes? The, so Apple ProRes, it's their uh, HD video format. It's like a, it's a codec. It's not lossless, but it's very high quality. Uh, we're using a device uh, called the Atama Shogun for capturing now. Before I was just using a 4K capture card in my PC, but the the Shogun actually does everything itself. So you just plug the device into it. It also has HDMI out and SDI inputs and everything, and it just captures straight 4K, 60 frames a second, even with HDR or you know 1080p at 120 frames per second. All that stuff wow. it does it all. Mm-hmm. It's in the ProRes format. You can edit ProRes very fast on any. If you use it on a Mac, it's fantastic. If you use it on a PC, it's still very fast, but you need a little bit more uh, hardware. But um, in comparison, before I was using, I was capturing to, I guess it was NVENC. It was like NVIDIA's own codec for capturing video. It's hardware accelerated, so it actually uses the graphics card to do it. Because if you try to capture with like a lossless codec at 4K, I mean, even a really fast PC, you just can't do it. You really need serious hardware for that. I'm not sure it even exists. But editing those MP4s was essentially impossible. So a lot of my older 4K videos, like that analysis I did on Horizon, for instance, I captured everything at 4K, and then I had to make um, uh, what you know, essentially 720p duplicates of it. I'm forgetting the name right now that, that it's called in Premiere, but you, I had to edit at 720p, and then when it exports, it exports at full 4K. But of course, the issue there is that you capture and then you have to re-encode all that 4K video at 720p. And Premiere does it for you. It's simple, but it takes a lot of extra time and you don't get that instant gratification of, all right, I need another shot. Let me just stick this in here. Oh, now I have to wait. So moving to ProRes has been great. But still, uh, once you actually want to encode the ProRes into like H.264 or HEVC, that's when the CPU comes into effect. And I've tested it now on a lot of different machines, <laughs> including uh, the MacBook Air, an older one, uh, the Surface Book, the my six core i seven, and the four core um, Skylake. And it's it's still not as fast as you want it to be. On the six core, it's all right. It's reasonable. You get about twenty three something frames per second when you're encoding into. Um, I guess just H.264, maybe. No, I guess when I was doing HEVC, I can't remember which codec, but either way, it was about 23 on that. On the quad-core Skylake, it was more like 13 frames a second or 14 frames per second. On the original MacBook Air, which was a 2012 model, by the way, it uh, was about 1 to 2 frames per second. Oh, wow. And then it would start to thermal throttle because it would get too hot, and you'd drop to like point three frames per second too much and then the surface book can do it at like four to five frames per second ish and it doesn't seem to throttle so it does it it gets there it's a little slow but it still gets there and so yeah (laughs) yeah i think i think i think the main difference maybe between photo editing and video editing is that with video if you don't have like at least a quad core laptop you would feel it. You would probably really yes. feel it. Um, um, it's really interesting to hear that even the 980 Ti is giving you trouble because it's actually not an old or a bad 
GPU yet. No, no, it's it's great. It's still excellent for games. It's just uh, when you're doing those exports with all the effects and you're working in 4K, uh, it just seems to be pushing it too hard. If I watch uh, like um, Afterburner's monitoring tools and check out the VRAM, you can always see it's floating around 5.7 to 5.8 gigabytes. And as soon as it kicks all the way up to six, you see the the CPU usage drops to like 2%. And the RAM usage on the hardware drops low, and you can tell that the whole system is bottlenecking on the graphics card and basically waiting for it to complete its instructions. And a lot of the times when it gets to that point, it just then throws up an error in Premiere, and it's like an error rendering frame, and then you have to start over. The only good part about that is you can at least, it leaves the incomplete video file on your hard drive, and you can go back to it and figure out, and it gives you a time code, so you can figure out exactly where it crashed. And a lot of times it's like if you're trying to do a complex effect or something that's, you know, a little bit more advanced, that would kind of push it over the edge. So you just remove that and you're fine. But it's really time consuming because you basically end up trying to experiment by exporting it over and over again until you figure out, all right, no more errors. <laughs> that is insane. So it's, it's very frustrating sometimes. Yeah, I can see that. And do you think this is a case where like the Quadro card, like the workstation cards would perform better? Or are those not really for video? I'm actually not that familiar. I haven't looked at them in a long time. So I'm not sure how they do with video at this point. Because it seems to be a mix of VRAM and just, you know, the card itself. So I'm guessing I would need at least 8 gigabytes or more uh, VRAM. Probably something like a 1080 Ti would hopefully be able to handle it without any sort of issues. Because it uses every bit of VRAM on that card during exporting. So it's just really pushing it to the limit. <laughs> when I, I, I have a 1080 GTX 1080, and uh, like when I play almost anything on it, like I can, I can see on the other monitor, <clears throat> I have my stats, tools, and oh, yeah. I can see that nothing is really pushing this GPU. Like I can do anything, I can like scale to f- 4K, and it's still really. Of course, it performs good in everything, and it's still not really pushing the GPU to the ex- to the, to the extreme. And like, I think it has eight gigabyte VRAM, which is insane to me. And I always wondered, like, why? Like, why does it have all this power? And I think now I have an idea because yeah, we we're dealing with uh, like uh, most of the time, people who want GPUs are either gamers or people who are into video production and if you're doing video production nowadays you probably want to be doing at least 2k preferably 4k and i wouldn't be surprised if some people are already doing 8k so oh yeah it's 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 kind of insane that uh if like if you're a gamer uh, and especially if you're a console gamer um your mind is just constantly just thinking about 1080p, 60 frames all the time. Like that's what you want. That's your ideal <laughs> goal. And now we're slowly going to 4K. And if you just take a look at the video production world, it's just insane. It's just just way way ahead of everything else. And it's really made me appreciate why you know a lot of movies are shipping on uh, UHD Blu-ray, and you always hear about oh well this isn't actually mastered at full 4K or the effects are only done at 2K. And I think I understand why. I mean, trying to render all those 3D pre-rendered effects uh, at 4K resolution, just the amount of time and effort and just energy you're going to be pouring into it for that to actually process is ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, 
uh, I listen to a few uh, Apple centric podcasts, and Apple fans, like pro Apple fans, have been really mad at Apple for neglecting the Mac Pro since 2013. Because, oh, yeah. uh, um, I mean, for someone like me who doesn't really depend heavily on the Mac, it was really easy for me to just go to Windows and then shift back to the to OS 10 and then just use them interchangeably. But for people who maybe who especially deal in video, once you're used to your own set of apps, it's not really a question about like a loyalty or being a fan of Apple, but really being a like a, a heavy user of certain apps and 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 yep. having your own workflow. So changing the operating system is a huge deal that you want to avoid as much as you can. And um, just now, Apple um, announced last month that they're doing the iMac Pro, and they said that they're going to be releasing a modular uh, Mac Pro uh, next year. And the interesting thing about the iMac Pro is that the iMac Pro will come in configurations like 8 cores, 10 cores, and 18 cores, which is insane to me. And I think that's the... uh, I I think it's the Xeon processors, but I also know that... uh, i9, maybe? I, I, th- I think it's maybe i9, and maybe the Xeon processors will be for the Mac Pro. But now, now that I like finally understand uh, um, why people need all these cores uh, and, and maybe even like two CPUs at the same time, uh, it makes sense to me why people are really excited for like for the iMac Pro, for the Mac Pro, because for people who are used to their own workflows, it makes a big difference when you jump from like an eight core machine to a like eighteen core machine. Which I still can't process. Like, uh, must feel really amazing to just do anything on that machine because it just will not throttle. Um, but um, I I wonder what what your opinion is about those uh, latest i nine uh, processors because when I was shopping for my desktop PC last year, almost exactly a year from now, I mean I eventually got a quad core. Uh, Skylake, uh, there were a few, uh, I think six core and eight core, but I don't really need them. And uh, after some research, I realized that Lightroom actually doesn't use much beyond uh, four core, so I just got a quad core one. But oh, I yeah, okay. wonder what you think about uh, these these latest ones, the i9. Oh, I mean, I would absolutely love to have the i9 simply because you're right if you're encoding video it's going to use it it's going to use every one of those cores mm. and the more cores the faster you can go and it's just it's all about saving time at that point right yeah you're basically spending money to save time <laughs> yeah and for me the funny thing is that with photo editing of course of course with, with video you have to when, when you export you have to just really wait a long time and the more cores that you have, the less time that you will wait. With photo, the exporting, I usually don't like uh, bulk export photos. I just edit and edit and edit. And then when I reach the final look that I'm happy with, I would just export it to, to any any format, JPG, PNG, and then upload it to my portfolio website. And so so it becomes, the pain becomes not the export, Porting part, but the editing part, because when I'm like changing the exposure and the contrast and all these sliders um, on the surface book, like I, I would change the slider and then I would look at the screen and like wait for maybe three seconds for the machine to just process what I want from it and just yep. put it back into the image. And so it's it's not about saving time, but 
if you're the kind of person who could just put up with it, if you could like move the slider, wait a little bit, see it, you're fine with it, then you move again, you just play along with everything. Like if you're fine with that, that's great. But for me, it just it quickly becomes uh, way too annoying because it's not about waiting. It's just about I, I feel like I'm crippled because. I want to move this just a little bit to the left. I won't like it. And then I would just like control Z, but even control Z would take a few more seconds. So it just gets to the point where I just, I, I, I'm spending more energy at being angry and annoyed than on the yeah. actual work itself. Uh, and that's what I, um, I think I finally uh, reached with uh, this uh, machine. Uh, of course, it, it has nothing to do with the operating system. It's not about the Mac or anything. It's just, I, I think it's just a combination of uh, of uh, a quad-core processor and a good enough uh, GPU for Lightroom. Because uh, when I play something like Endless Space 2 or Civilization, I I can reach 30 frames per second, which is good for these kind of games. And I, I don't really want to play games on it, aside from these two. Uh, so it's not particularly a gaming gpu but it's it's really it's really good for lightroom and i wonder how how good it is for uh for uh just video editing for 4k yeah it's true editing video also has those same limitations where you're often getting slowed down basically as your edit gets more complex and you start adding more elements to it the more you're basically getting stuck like you click on the timeline you might wait uh, the biggest issue for me is when you start layering on effects or post-processing onto the video clips, then even just scanning over the timeline with your mouse and trying to pinpoint frames, it gets very, very, very slow. And sometimes the whole premiere just becomes unresponsive for several seconds. You're just waiting, waiting, waiting. All right, now you can move. So, of course, you can disable those effects during editing. You can basically toggle them on and off at any point, and you often have to do that. But I personally when I'm making the video, I always like to go back to the beginning, just watch bits over and over and over again. And I kind of get this sense of timing in my head about how I want to refine it and improve it. And if you can't work with it in real time and it's too slow to deal with, you can't really do that anymore. I mean, you can sit there and do like the, the render into out feature, but then you're clicking, you render, you wait, and then you can view it. But being able to work in real time with 4k video is a huge thing. And with my desktop, I can do that with those ProRes files for the most part. There's certain things that you do where it's still it's really slow, but overall you can do pretty well. But with those laptops, uh, you have to limit yourself to very, very simple edits. If you really try to start doing anything more complex in there, it just grinds to a halt and you basically can't work. It's just constantly freezing and seizing up and almost like it's going to crash at any point. And that really sucks. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I wonder if, if those new uh, laptops, the Max-Q laptops that NVIDIA are vetting, I guess. Uh, I saw one of them uh, by Asus. Yeah, Richard reviewed one of those, actually, for our site. And uh, it's just an impressive thing. <laughs> it is. Uh, I really like it. And before I got the MacBook Pro, I was looking at it. And uh, just one of the few things that I didn't like about it is that I do appreciate the fact that it has a 1080p, uh, I mean, it has a 1080p screen, which I was hoping for more, but it's uh, the refresh rate is 120 yeah. hertz, which is incredible for a laptop this size because it's... I think it's, it's G-Sync as well, right? It has G-Sync, yeah, which is just, just yeah. amazing. Uh, so it's clearly a gaming laptop. So maybe yeah. 
uh, it has a GTX 1080 uh, graphics card, and according to all the reviews that I saw, including the uh, DF1, it is like its performance is between the 1070 and the 1080, like the desktop plus cards, which is amazing for a laptop that is as thin as like the recent uh, uh, MacBook ones. Yep. Um, and it's, it's just, it's as light, it's as, as, as thin, which is just incredible to me. And it, of course, it has a quad core processor, which is, a, I mean, it seems like a fantastic machine for video editors, except for the fact that it has a, a 1080p, Yeah, I'd really like to see NVIDIA or some, well, I'd like to see a manufacturer take the Max-Q kind of hardware and turn it into more of a workstation style laptop instead of a gaming focused one, because the hardware has all the potential to be an amazing mobile editing station, both for photos, video, anything you want to throw at it, it'd be incredible for that. But you're right, they're so focused on gaming with certain features that it kind of limits it a little bit. And also, you know, the design is not bad on it. It looks pretty good overall, I'd say. But, you know, I, I was never a fan of laptops that put those, like, gaming flourishes on them. Yep. And I use gaming in quotes where it's like, oh, I got this crazy red vents here. And it's all this bulbous plastic. <laughs> oh, it's terrible, man. It looks it horrible. It's like, I don't want to carry that around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, like, behind me, I'm looking at a laptop that I bought in 2000, I think it was 2011. And I bought it because I wanted a machine that can run Skyrim. Okay. Because I, I was playing Skyrim on the Xbox 360 at the time. And like the loading, which uh, would usually take something like uh, 40 seconds, 50 seconds. And it just annoys me because I mean, I played the game for, uh, for uh, at the time to, up to 60 hours. So I, okay. I just, I couldn't put up with the loading anymore. So I, I bought a massive, massive laptop because I did want to play Skyrim anywhere, which I still don't know what this term means when, when you're carrying a massive laptop. So the laptop that I have behind me, it has something like, I don't know, six something GTX 6 series mobile okay. GPU and it weighs 10 pounds, like five kilograms, which is insane. Like I, 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 and it's really thick and it's like 17 inch. I think it's something like six kilograms. And it's actually, you know what? I, I know, I know what you're talking about somewhat. Cause my, my first laptop that I ever really invested in was in 2004. Mm. It was, uh, I, it's, I guess it's originally a Clevo D 900 T, but I got like a different branding on it. It was over six kilos. Uh, it had two bays for optical drives. It shipped with with RAID uh, hard drives, so you could have two hard drives installed in it. Uh, it had a seven, 17.3-inch screen, maybe. Wow. It was a pretty large screen for the time. It was like, 1650, or like 1680 by 1050 resolution, which was super high in 2004. But what was really crazy about it is that it had a desktop Pentium 4 processor in it. So it was the the Pentium 4 3.6 gigahertz desktop version installed on this. So it had six fans on it. And then <laughs> that it had is a G- insane. It had a GeForce Go 6800, which was kind of like a 6800 GT, which was a pretty high-end graphics card of that day. So you get this thing, and you load up Half-Life 2 or Doom on it, and it's like crushing uh, most desktops. <laughs> yeah. But it weighs so much, and it is so... Th- like. 
it is thicker than say like if you if you have like one of those NES minis around. Yeah. It's actually thicker than that. Wow. Uh it's it's a very deep, beefy machine. Just the screen alone is is thicker than the Surface Book. Oh my god. <laughs> as a whole. Yeah, that is <laughs> insane. I think I think let me take one last look. Yeah, I think my machine is a little bit like that. It is way too loud, way too big, way too oh, heavy. Yeah, horribly loud. And uh, I mean, I liked it at the time, but I think it's amazing that now we have reached a point where you could get something super, super, super thin and super light, and it could just run literally any game you wanted to run at like above sixty frames. And um, what I love about G Sync is that even like even if you uh, play, I remember I played Mafia on my desktop PC, and when it first launched, it had problems, so the game in certain areas was dipping into, like, the 40s, and with a G-Sync screen, you can barely tell that the game is actually dropping frames, because it just, it just looks so smooth, and, um, like, when it's, like, low 40s, I can notice that something is wrong, but usually when it's, like, suddenly dips from, let's say, 55 to... 45, 44, most of the time, I just don't even notice, and I think that's really amazing, so backing all of that into very thin laptops i think is is uh, amazing um i agree razer did something like that last year with the blade um but i like that uh, uh getting to the point where you can have like some of the best gpus which is that 1080 on such a thin enclosure and uh it, it kind of it makes me sad that apple is not working with NVIDIA because I think NVIDIA is really backing a lot of punch compared to uh, AMD. And I get that Apple is really, really not about gaming. They don't really care about gaming at all. But just having something a little bit like that in these uh, machines would just be amazing. It's a shame it's not there. They could absolutely do something awesome with it. So I wonder, have you ever thought about doing work on the iPad? iPad Pro. Uh, I haven't actually considered doing that at all, just because, uh, you know, working with Premiere at least is so. It's about getting data in and like I have data from so many different sources. At any one point, I probably have about ten to twelve hard drives connected to my PC, both internal and external, and video is often scattered across several of them. And so I basically need to be able to get at all these different sources without any sort of hassle. Just I want to be able to plug it in, just go and like drag it right into my timeline and just start working. And once you, you know, add the iPad into the mix with its whole, you know, the different ecosystem there, Mm -hmm. it gets a little bit tricky and I'm not sure it could support what I need to do on there smoothly. No, no, I see that. I see that. Um, I am, I'm I'm reading and learning how to draw stuff like that, and it's it's a lot of fun with the new iPad Pro because uh, the I think they dropped the latency from 60 milliseconds to 20 milliseconds, which is a oh, yeah. massive massive difference. Like it's, it's 120 hertz screen now. It is, yeah. So those two, those two together, like when I when I bought the iPad Pro, uh, the, the the original one in 2000. Uh, I think 15, um, and I got the pencil. When I draw with the pencil on it, and like I'm drawing really fast, I can see that the line is trying to catch up to my. Yep. It's to, behind to, it to the motion, yeah. <laughs> and now when I 
write for the first time, it feels, I mean, I mean, it does feel like I'm writing on glass because I am writing on glass, but there is no lag, like there is no lag. And um, when I use the Notability app, which gives me lines on the screen to, to mimic a, a notebook, and I, and I just try to write any sentence in Arabic or English, for the first time, I can see my actual true handwriting on the screen, which is really interesting. So that is one area that I'm really enjoying with the iPad Pro. And uh, I tried photo editing, and I do like it just because I use Instagram a lot. And for Instagram, I really don't edit on Lightroom for Instagram. I just like right, right. get the photos from my camera and just do some quick edits on a few iPhone apps and then just post to Instagram. So with the iPad, I can basically do the same workflow, which is I have the same apps on the iPhone and I just like working with these uh, raw files and just directly manipulate them with my hand. But to me, there's something satisfying about having a bigger screen and a lot of power. Even though the uh, the iPad Pro is really powerful, and it beats uh, most machines in uh, uh, single-core performance. But what it comes down to it, I think, is just just like you said, it's, it's the ecosystem itself that sometimes feels limiting because exactly I have the OS ten and I have Windows and I my like my entire um, photo library is on. Uh, an external SSD. So when I move between them, even though it's a different operating system, like everything is just there. Whereas with the yep. iPad, it's just a whole different thing, and it has to sync with uh, like the Adobe uh, Creative Cloud and gets the files. Yep. And if you like, if I try to, I actually consider just I, I like the idea of just traveling with an iPad Pro because it means I just won't have a lot of stuff with me. And the thing is, if I transfer like these massive 8k images to it each 8k raw file would be something close to 50 megapixel so when i'm like when i import let's say 500 or a thousand photos into ipad and i just edit some of them and now i want to move to editing on the desktop well I have to wait for the iPad to upload those thousand photos up to the cloud, and then I have to wait for the desktop to get them back. So I yep. like it. I really like it. And I would, I look forward to the day where I just have a, 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 a small tablet with me that I can do everything on it. But I think, um, I think for the time being, for my kind of workflow, which is really, it's not about, I'm not a professional, I'm just a, a hobbyist. I have my own small library of photos, but even then, it's just really difficult to to work with these. Uh, yep, I agree. So, yeah, um, I just settled down with the MacBook and desktop, and it, I think it's kind of funny that my MacBook's processor is kind of better than the one that I have on the desktop because the desktop is Skylake and the MacBook is... Uh, Cable Lake, uh, of course, the Skylake is faster, but uh, I think it's, it's kind of amazing that laptops are as good and as powerful as they are right now. And uh, I'm still in my honeymoon period, so I can't really think straight <laughs> about the MacBook yet. The same, the same thing happened uh, to me with the Surface Book when I first got it. I was just madly, deeply in love, and it took me like three months to start thinking uh, uh, realistically about it. Uh, but one thing that is a little bit annoying with these MacBooks is the uh, 
the dongle life because it's all USB-C ports. Oh, that's right. Oh. And when I like when I was preparing to record with you, I want to record on the Mac because I wanted to use the apps that I have on the Mac and I was just running around looking for my USB-C <laughs> to USB-A dongle because I want to connect the microphone and most yep. of the time like right now, most of the time, I don't really need to use the dongle because my two hard drives, like the external SSD for the photos and the uh, backup drive are both USB-C, which is amazing. But um, when it comes, when, when it's time to use something like the camera, a microphone, something like that, and you don't know where the dongle is. It just it could ruin everything. I mean, it's annoying. Yeah. Of course, worst case scenario, I could have still recorded with the desktop. But the idea is, I just kept thinking, what if I was traveling and I didn't actually have the dongle with me? And um, that's, I think, one setback about these. Um, I thought it would be much worse. Honestly, I think it's I think it's fine. Um, you just you can you can. F- figure out the, the, the dongles that you want. Like, I, I only actually bought two. I got the USB-C to USB-A dongle for connecting all my USB, uh, regular USB stuff, and I have a USB-C card reader. But if you're the kind of guy who's always, just like you, who's always connected to external drives, then you're just going to be rocking dongles everywhere, which would be really, yeah. really annoying. dongle nightmare. <laughs> yeah. So I think... Uh, the gist of this talk is that the Surface Book kind of let you down. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just, I'm not sure that there's any laptop that could truly satisfy all the needs in that area, right? Yeah. But it kind of worked out in the end well enough in the sense that I was, I've, I ended up going with multiple computers and they all kind of served their purpose. So I ended up bringing a small kind of uh, desktop with an i7 6700K in it. Interesting. And it's just it's a little tiny thing. I used the capture device as a monitor. It was awful to work on because you really couldn't see what the heck you were doing. So I used that exclusively for just crunching data. Mm. <laughs> and that's all it did. And then the Surface Book did other stuff as well. And so, you know, kind of working in, working together, I made it work. So it it ended up being okay. It got the job done and I got every, you know, all the internet related stuff, the FTP uploads, uh, actually editing video because I had to make cuts and stuff and like do things like that. So I was editing because it was on a, uh, I was capturing to SSDs. You know, I brought four SSDs to capture on. I just plug it into the surface book, do everything I need to directly to the SSD and then just plug it into the desktop machine and bam, you know, just crunches from there and it works. So, you know, it it got the job done, but yeah, it's it's not going to set the world on fire when it comes to crunching through video. <laughs> yeah, I do I do like the idea of uh, removing the screen. I thought I would be using the screen by itself with the bin a lot. I didn't end up doing that. I think. Um, yeah, I think it's just not as. I think I think it's just the latency thing. It's, it's a, the, the iPad Pro made me really use the bin a lot. The latency, whereas, yeah, yeah, and. Um, I actually do love the design of the Surface Book. Yeah, it's a nice looking thing. It's just, it's not all the way there, right? There's there's things that need to improve. They really need to put a quad core in there for one thing. I agree. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it is disappointing. It's, it's a cool little machine, but it's too expensive and 
really disappointing. If big you time, do, big time. If you do any video stuff, photo stuff, heavy photo stuff. Um, so this is, I mean, Brave is a gaming company and I am playing games and I think you are playing games. So I thought, well, aside from our talk about the stuff that we use to do work, I thought we could talk about the games that we're playing because even though I lately, I don't have a lot of time for games just because um, I get transferred to, um, I mean, I, I do work on the in the desert, but I get transferred to an even further place. Um, so most of my time is just on the laptop and I don't even play on the Switch that much. But when I got the Surface Book uh, back in November and even with this MacBook, one of the main things for me uh, for, for a laptop, I just wanted a machine that could do all of my photo stuff well, but I also wanted it to run endless base two as I mean I don't really need sixty frames or anything. It's it's a strategy game if it could run at thirty frames, even at the lowest setting, that would be fine for me. And um, luckily, both of the machines uh, do that. And I I am really surprised at how much this game clicked for me because um, I think I played a hundred and something hours so far, and I would like to believe that I don't really have that. I don't have a lot of time to dedicate to games, let alone one game, but somehow this game just works for me. Like one day... Really clicked. Yeah, and one day I just spent eight straight hours, like I didn't eat. All I did was just drinking water. <laughs> and I was just playing one round. And of course, that's that's what these 4X strategy games are about. You just get drawn into this one more turn cycle where you just think, okay, I'm just going to do this one small thing and I'm just going to adjust everything. And you hit like the next turn and tons of things happen. Then you say, okay, okay, I'm just going to do like one final thing. And it just keeps happening again and again and again. <laughs> and um, I, I do like Civilization Six. It didn't click with me though the same way Endless Space 2 did. And I think in general, I'm I'm a fan of ambient music which is what the endless place to soundtrack is all about and i love space i love like galaxies and, yeah, and all of that exactly i can understand that and i think uh, i think my favorite thing about it is just the general mood of it because civilization sometimes feels like it's a little bit more of a cheesy charming and cheesy yes whereas yeah, endless space 2 is just a lot of mystery and a lot of darkness, and a lot of... It's like cold sci-fi. It is, it is, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I mean, before Endless Space 2, I used to play Sins of a Solar Empire, which I think... Oh, yeah, that one. ...has with that. probably my all-time favorite title for a game. It just sounds so cool. It sounds like a, like, like an amazing like literature book. Um, but uh, Endless Space 2 uh, came and... Um, uh, took its place, and uh, I think I talked about Endless Space 2 in one of the previous episodes. Uh, uh, I don't want to get into it, but if you have any interest in like space um, strategy games, um, you should really check it out. And the best thing about it, just like Civilization, is that uh, it is a turn-based game, which means you could take all the time in the world to learn how to play it. And uh, this is what I did, actually, because I bought it when it was in early access and it is called endless space 2 which means it's a sequel so it's a sequel and it's an early access game so 
at the beginning, they were really just targeting their fan base. And uh, at the beginning, they didn't have like, tutorials or anything. But I like the screenshots, and I wanted to get into the game. So even though I never played an Endless game before, um, like they have Endless Legend, Endless Space 1, I didn't play them. So when I bought Endless Space 2 on Early Access, it did not have a tutorial. It didn't just have anything to point me in the right direction. And I spent something like 20 hours just fooling around and trying stuff until everything clicked. But of course, right now, it's like the game is fully finished. I think it was released in May, maybe June, maybe May. Um, and uh, it, it has a full tutorial. And it is a really good tutorial. Like I, I When they released the, just the update to the full game, I did play the tutorial one time just to see if I missed anything. And uh, uh, it's, it's a really good game with a good tutorial. It, uh, uh, there's not a lot of hand-holding. They just give you the right amount of information. And after that, you can just um, enable advanced tips, which would only just notify you when when it's when you're going to try something that's a little bit deeper. So huh. uh, I, I really like it so much. I think I think it's, uh, it's, it's on its way to become my favorite strategy game and uh wow that's high praise i've heard that from other people as well so it's clearly it's got some buzz <laughs> yeah I, I still want to try stuff like multiplayer um i want to like i haven't tried playing games with larger maps just because i play on those medium to small maps and i just spent 10 hours on a match so i wonder how long it will take me to finish one of those larger maps but something about it just works for me like when, when i play it I, I feel like like people do yoga and i for me i just play endless space too and i just reach that zen <laughs> reach that that space of just being calm nice. concerned with everything in the world um that was by amplitude right it is by amplitude yeah i think it's like i actually uh i, I saw them once and i got like a a cool little usb stick from them that is really with cool. a bunch of assets on it and uh i think they showed me the game like two or three years ago it was like gamescom like 2014 or 2015 and then it i didn't keep track of it after that and then when it started popping up again i was like wait that was the strategy game i saw from those guys they're really nice fellows as well they seem very passionate about like really doing something cool in the forex space so i'm really happy to hear that they have seemed to have pulled it off so successfully i just remembered my favorite thing about the game is actually the ui because these strategy games, these like 4X massive, massive strategy games, they usually, I mean, they are complex games. And I do sympathize with people who are responsible for designing interfaces for these games because it is really maddening to to design interfaces that need to make sense to players who are playing it for the first time. And I think, I mean, I, I played Civilization at the same time as I did in the space too. And like every time I play Civilization VI, it just, it felt like the, the UI was just way too noisy and just tons of typefaces and clashing fonts yeah. and, and drop shadows. And, I know what you mean. And whereas with Endless Space 2, it's just a slick game with, with easily, easily my favorite UI of any strategy game. And it's, it's the first thing that caught my uh, eye when I was playing the game for the first time, because this is a game that I'm, not I, I haven't played the first game. This is a sequel. There is no tutorial, and I'm on my own, and I don't even understand what the endless systems are yet. 
Right, right. It just looks so clean, and they know where to hide stuff and where they where to layer stuff and put stuff that it just felt welcoming. Because most of the time, when you play a strategy game, I think most people just struggle with uh, the density of information because you have ten thousand tooltips everywhere, and you have to do like you have to yep. research this technology, and you have to deploy these troops and all of that. And with Illustrator, so it's just really super clean and minimal and just done the right way and um, it's especially amazing when you look at screens of endless space one and you compare it with two because you could just see that one was Come a long way yeah i mean they, they, i mean i'm not sure if it's the same designer i'm not sure if they, maybe they brought in even more uh, ui designers but it really pays to have good ui designers who have uh empathy for the player because when you design something, when you design a game, and you're just too close to everything, it's sometimes difficult to gain perspective. And um, I can only imagine how difficult this is for designers and makers of these strategy games because it's just it's just impossible to... I, I think you just reach a point where you think, okay, I don't even know whether this is good or not for the player. Like, is this easy? Is this not? Because you're not just dealing with one-time tutorials, one-time pop-ups, but they just continuous at every turn. So I, yeah, I do yeah. I do feel for all of these designers of, of Forest Games, but Endless Space 2 just showed me that it is possible to have a game so dense, so complex, yet so inviting and so seemingly simple. Yeah, they have. it really has a nice design, cohesive look to it from what I've seen. And, you know, you're right. It kind of looks like it pulls you in. So... But I haven't actually sat down and played the full game yet, and it sounds like I might have to do that. It sounds kind of relaxing, actually. <laughs> yeah, you should. I mean, maybe at the beginning, it'll feel a little bit overwhelming, tense, maybe overwhelming. Yeah, but I think I think with just a, a match or two, especially the the, the, the tutorial slash training match, it will just show you everything. And after that, it would just be really, really uh, good. That's good. Good and relaxing. And I, I hope you'll give it a chance. Um, I'm always unlucky in that I am drawn, like whenever I'm really drawn into a game, mostly just people don't care about it. And Endless Space 2 is one of those games where, I mean, of course, it, it sold a lot. I think it sold well and everything. But for the people that are around me and the people that I know, like every time I talk about Endless Space 2, no one really cares that much about it. No one knows much about it. And it just it's, it's kind of the same with Metroid, with Mega Man 9 and 10, where I'm really excited about these games, but I don't know anyone who likes them. But I hope you'll give it a chance. I think I think you will like it. And um, are you playing anything in particular? Anything that sticks um, to your mind? I guess because I'm busy, I, I I've been playing a lot of retro games just because they're very mostly good for pick up and play. But it's kind of a weird mix. So I was I've been playing some going back to Time Crisis Two on the PlayStation Two with the GunCon Two, and I discovered. I just discovered this most recent time about using a second controller, essentially. I thought, hey, if I hook up the uh, DDR dance pad to the PlayStation, I can use that as the arcade pedal. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, you just use the dance pad on the floor, and that acts as the pedal. This is insane. Because <laughs> so, any controller plugged in, every button on the controller acts as the cover slash reload button mm-hmm. that you have in the arcade. So I was like, hmm, if you just hook up this, and sure enough, it actually works. So sitting there with the light gun and, like, the pad at your feet, and you just, like, you know, you stomp on it, and you're up, and then you let off, and, you know, it's just, it works really well. It's a lot of fun. 
it's it's still it's a great game. Those are those are really fun, like in shooters. And it, it's it's on what console you're playing it? Uh, PlayStation Two. Okay. Yeah, it's it's an old one. It and it reminds me of the lost art of actual light gun games because you can't do that on a flat panel TV, right? I mean, we've had like the IR style stuff or like other motion controls to try to emulate it, but it's really not the same. Where with, with a light gun, you get that direct interaction where you you don't have a reticle on screen. You just aim at the screen, pull the trigger, and it's like an instant response. So you really get the feeling that you're actually like interacting directly with the game world in a way that you do not get when using like, you know, Wii style IR controls. And yeah, it really makes a big difference. It just feels awesome to play those games still. I never actually played one of these games with, with their guns. Usually it's because they were expensive back then. Time Crisis is probably my favorite, actually, because of the pedal. Mm-hmm. So, are, are you familiar with the pedal then? No. Okay, so I can explain why this is so cool, right? Normally in Lycan games, you just like the screen just kind of scrolls along, you just shoot as the as the screen moves, right? There's nothing to it. You're just shooting, aiming, trying not to get hit by taking out guys fast enough. Well, Time Crisis added the mechanic of when you step on the pedal in the arcade, you stand up. When you let off the pedal, you kneel down behind cover, kind of like what you would see in Gears of War, right? So when you're taking cover, you can't be hit, and every time you take cover, you reload your gun. So essentially, you're popping up, shooting, and then going back behind cover. And you get into this rhythm of sort of like pop up, take out guys, go behind cover, your weapon reloads, pop up again, try to take out more guys. And so there's a lot more strategy and interaction to actually playing. And there's lots of color-coded enemies in there, and they're worth different amounts of points, right? So you go for like the red guys or the yellow guys, you get a nice shot on them, you're getting more points. So it's all about sort of prioritizing the threats and the most valuable guys on the screen because, you know, they'll disappear more quickly anyway. And it, it just has much more of an interactive element to it. And Time Crisis 2 goes to some crazy places. Like right out of the first level, there's this one scene where you have to get up a ramp and these guys are like tossing barrels of fruit down the ramp at you while shooting at you from cover. And if you hold down the pedal and you're out of cover, your guy actually jumps out of cover and starts walking up the ramp and you can kind of shoot at the barrels and try to dodge them on your way up. But when you let off the pedal, he'll dot dash behind uh, whatever cover is there, but there's only like three or four pieces of cover. So you have to get out of cover, make your way up past some of the barrels and then get back to the next bit of cover to reload and it's just like this, like the tension of working your way up there or one where you're actually like riding in a motorboat down a river. And, you know, it's a really high speed chase kind of sequence. And, uh, you know, you're taking cover behind the boat and shooting at guys coming at you. And it's just, it, it's really fun. It's very, it's very active and it's probably my favorite type of light gun shooter out there. So if you've never played time crisis, definitely, uh, give it a whirl if you get a chance, but you know, especially the arcade because the arcade guns actually have action. So every time you pull the trigger, the whole slide mechanism actually like it forcefully like with every shot. So you feel like the gun, the whole gun is mechanical. It's this really, it's like a hydraulic kind of mechanical gun and you're just shooting. You just feel awesome when doing it. And there's some users that have made guns like that for home, but the actual official Namco ones and most light guns do not have that feature because obviously it's a pretty complex thing to pull off. <laughs> there was a time crisis on the PlayStation three, right? Yes. Um, the PlayStation three games, I believe were just 
they used, so the first one used like an IR kind of thing where you would actually stick to IR uh, readers in the corners of your TV, yeah. which act like the sensor bar on the Wii. Mm-hmm. But because they were broken up into two chunks and you put them on opposite corners, it would give you a little bit more accuracy. And then after that, they released uh, Raising Storm and some other light gun games that were using the PlayStation Move. And they were okay, but again, both of them are using kind of either IR or like, you know, gyroscope technology. So they have to put like an on screen reticle to work properly. And there's input lag there, and it just feels like you're dragging a cursor around and then aiming with it like you're using a mouse as opposed to just aiming at the screen and pulling the trigger. So it's not quite as good. <laughs> um, do you have a Switch? I do, of course. Do you like it? I do like the Switch a lot. I've built up a little bit of a collection for it, too, just because it's. Uh, I like having games on carts again. <laughs> yeah, uh, the funny thing is I am buying... Um, well, all, all of my games are digital except for Zelda, which I put the limited edition because I do like the cards and I really, really love the uh, the case designs of the Switch. I think they're really attractive. They're small. They kind of remind me of the PSP ones. But what I like about the Switch is that it kind of feels like an iPhone or an iPad in the sense that, or I mean, or like a 3DS to me, because with, with 3DS, yeah. I do have a lot of like actual physical, ca- physical uh, games. games, but I, I, I buy digitally most of the time. And with the Switch, I noticed that um, sometimes I would be out and I would just think, I want to play a little bit of this guy. So I would just open the uh, open the uh, uh, screen and just scroll to this guy and start it. And uh, uh, I did buy a few games that I didn't even start yet just because... It is the kind of system that makes me think I'll get to it eventually because I know, yep. I mean, I have my Switch with me all the time. Uh, when I travel, it's it's a great way to spend time because if you're traveling in economy class and you're really tired, <laughs> there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of things you can do, but most of the time you really would not feel like doing them. And uh, in the past with the Vita and with the 3DS, I would play like maybe for half an hour and just quit. But with, with, yep, with the Switch, same. I just played Zelda for like four hours like in just one go and I didn't feel it because it's just, it's just a fully-fledged console game that just takes a lot of time to play and you could just play it anywhere. I think that's really, really amazing. That's one of the things on the plane, actually, is if you wedge the, the Switch up where the little monitor is where you usually watch the in-flight movie, if you find a way to kind of stick the switch there, you can just lean back in the chair yeah. <laughs> and just play it. Yeah, this is what I did. And I'm actually, I'm a big fan of uh, of the Wii controls in games like Metroid Prime because I really loved Metroid Prime 3 Corruption when it came out because you connect the nunchuck to the Wiimote and you play it in kind of a more relaxed way. Uh, and I love that this is back with the Switch because in the plane, exactly. uh, and even sometimes uh, like when I'm just chilling at work, lunch or, or whatever, and I just have uh, a free hour, I could just uh, just put the screen, pull the stand, and just play in a very relaxed way. And Zelda is one of those games where it's just like it's a massive map. Most of the time you could just be climbing or walking slowly or whatever, and you could just relax with it and just play and like even if enemies oh, yeah. came at you you could just you know escape or just run or whatever and you could be in that same buzz and I like that I like that a lot and um, it's one of the 
it's one of the few things where you see the marketing pitch and then you own the console and you think this is actually as as real and as good as what I got from the marketing videos because I am doing just exactly that when I'm out with my friends I could play with them uh, I'm playing in the in the plane I have people ask me what this is uh, I play at work and um, my job as I said uh, it's it's in the desert so my new location is something like 70 minutes to 75 minutes, uh, like, like oh, a trip. Every day? Every day. So the total is something like, what, one, 140 minutes. It's, 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 over. it's over two hours. It's a lot of driving. Yeah. And sometimes I just ride with my friend. So I just park my car somewhere and he would take me and we just go together and he would be driving. And I'm lucky that he's the kind of guy who hates when people drive, so he just likes to drive all the time, which means I have an, <laughs> a free hour where I, where I could like I could listen to a podcast, I could just walk on my laptop, or most of the time I would just play on the Switch. And yeah. uh, it just made me really appreciate the idea of the Switch, because if you're the kind of guy, like gamer, who's just mostly gaming at home all the time, the promise of the Switch or the potential might not be there, but if you play at home, you like playing at home, you have a nice TV and everything, but you also game outside a lot like me, then it's just an amazing, amazing console. Because what usually happens for me like the past few years, ever since I started Brave Wave, is I started traveling a lot. And when I travel, like when I travel for a week, for 10 days, two weeks, I would come back to a game and think like, I would be so out of it that yeah, I, I, just don't, I just don't know what to do. And it happened with every major game. Whereas with the Switch, when I traveled to um, Seoul, to uh, Korea, and also to Turkey, to Dubai, like every time I travel, I just take the Switch with me and I can just play for a few hours and it just makes a big difference. And I think what I also like about it is that like even if you have a super small and slim gaming laptop, it feels different when you're playing a laptop compared to uh, the Switch because a laptop, like even if I play something like Endless Space 2, which I could play perfectly fine with the trackpad and keyboard and everything, something just doesn't feel quite right to me when I'm playing Endless Space 2 on the plane. Whereas with the Switch, I, it just feels like, to me, it feels like the full experience, like no Perfect compromises. Yeah. And I like that a lot. And uh, I am a fan of what Nintendo is doing right now, which is... I agree. Uh, separating their releases so that almost every month there is at least one big game. So right. I started with Zelda and then Mario Kart and uh, now we have ARMS and that's just their games. There are a lot of really awesome other games. SNK has been releasing a lot of games. Uh, I am playing some of them for the first time. Uh, I got this Gaia. Oh, cool. Because even though this Gaia is already out on PS4, I just I think it's the kind of game oh, that it's great. It just works so Switch. well. It just works so well with the Switch. It's much better there. Yeah, and uh, Cave Story, Tumbleweed, I think it's called. Uh, there are a lot of Tumble, tumble Seed. Thinking of Cave Story, actually, I picked up the retail version of that. And I was surprised to see that they actually included uh, a nice manual. Yes. And like a little soundtrack disc. Yes, I love that. And then that. the fact that the, the manual itself was like... Uh, it's like beautiful artwork with like full color pages. That is amazing. Like real nice glossy print. And it's the first Switch game I've purchased that actually had this. Yeah. And, and now it makes me want more Switch games to have this actually, stuff. Actually, one of the things that really made me kind of annoyed with the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 era is that 
it was the beginning of the end for booklets because oh, yeah. I used to be the kind of gamer who, I, I mean, I just get used to, like when I buy a game and I would open it, I would read the entire booklet before yeah, I play I, the game. I liked doing that too. I, I just get used to it and I just like I it. That. And I think mostly just because, like, when 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 you when you just open it, just start beijing around, and you see all this beautiful art, it's just really it's just a great great way to to get introduced to the game before you uh, play it, and then yeah, exactly. S- slowly, you 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 start buying games and you open them, and it just has like a. I don't know privacy agreement, something like that. Like it's a one-page thingy, uh, and I—that's one of the things that made me think. Well, why do I really want to buy physical? If there is really not that much of a difference, and this is the reason actually why um, our booklets of the CDs that we do are sometimes extensive, with tons of art, tons of interviews, and all of that. Because that's good. I just like that. I just like buying something, and I, and I and I see a thick booklet, and it just has tons of stuff for you. And I still get that feeling with retro games too. Like even yeah. like, you know, I, I was expanding my Namco collection on the PS one and I picked up Ace Combat three, mm-hmm. the Japanese version. Mm-hmm. And it comes with two booklets. Like there's one booklet here where it's literally just like uh, story related bits That's and amazing. nice artwork all in full color. And then you actually have the real manual itself as a separate booklet and it's all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then the packaging, of course, it's like, you know, they package the two discs in there together in a nice thick jewel case with like lovely art and design. And it's like, you, you just don't get that anymore most of the time. No, and, you don't. and every time I pick up a retro game with this kind of like packaging and feel, it's just, I lament the fact that it's basically gone. So what you say about what you're doing with Bray wave is I really appreciate that kind of stuff. That makes me want to own those types of products just because I really love good packaging design and like a good, like typefaces and just like good choice of art. And that means a lot to me. And I'm absolutely willing to pay more money to get that stuff in high quality. I think it's just that I noticed when I buy criterion collection movie or when I grab the Rockman Famicom cartridge and I like, I, I plug in the game and I just look at the, beautiful pages and I just start looking around all kind of art that you can only see in those booklets like there of course the, the, the Famicom game doesn't have any gallery or anything so it's, it's, it's just stuff specifically made for the booklet and it, it, it just it gives you a different kind of connection to the product big time because it's it, it, it doesn't feel just mechanical to me it feels like you I mean you can't really talk or do much with the with the customer or the player or the listener. So one way to have that connection is to just give them stuff that just makes them feel kind of appreciated, makes them feel that it's it's a little bit more personal. Um, notes, behind the scenes stuff, making off stuff like all kind of things that you know these people who instead of just buying the game digitally, they bought it physically. They would. I mean, it would be nice to give them something that just makes makes them feel extra warm inside. Exactly, and one of the and on the inverse of that, one of the worst trends from last generation was the introduction of those cases where they would cut out the recycling symbol in the plastic itself. Oh my god, that's awesome! And then the plastic itself even outside of that was like super soft and bendy. It just felt like this, like the cheapest thing. And then you open up the case and all you see inside is just like, there's no instructions. It's just like warning text all plastered on the back of it, or it's just white space. And it just feels like this, like cheaply put together 
piece of junk and it's like uh you know it's okay i'm happy to have the discs but this feels like a piece of shit that was like tossed together and it's just you know that really that's a huge turnoff to me and i really so you know i'm glad that there are some uh companies that put effort into packaging like limited run games as well yeah i I like what they're doing with their stuff where they really put care into every game that's released and that's awesome that's and i i feel like there's more people like us now that are starting to want that and are willing to pay for it. Yep. So I feel like maybe higher quality packaging is slowly going to roll back in as it becomes more of a boutique thing. I think so. As opposed to this, like, okay, well, we don't want to manufacture a million copies with like super high quality print, but we could do, you know, like a run of a couple thousand in the super high quality and then just sell the game digitally as well. That kind of thing. I feel it's funny because indies are the, kind of people who can see like most of the limited run games if not all of them are games by indie uh, developers why well because well aside from the fact that it's probably much easier to work with them than with other uh, uh, publishers it's because you can easily see that indie developers are the kind of guys who you could just you know that they would want something like this for their game. They would love to design a booklet and just to have uh, something that resembles that stuff that they grew up with. Whereas with the big publishers, it's not that the people who are directly responsible for the product don't care, but to get something like this approved, it's just like I can see how someone would say, well, is it really worth... Uh, fifty more cents to make a booklet, or like two or two dollars or one dollar. Well, maybe not. Then, do we really need that? Let's just put a a digital manual, which is fine, but it's just sad. It's sad because um, I think the industry used to be uh, more focused on just really super awesome packaging, and now it's just about which, which is fine. But it, now it's just the games themselves, like the, the CD itself, and everything else around it is just. Not not that important, um, which is just really uh, sad. So I'm glad I'm glad limited run exists. Uh, I actually haven't uh, ordered any game from them yet. Uh, I just see I just see that they pop up on my feed all the time because they announce a lot of stuff and people are really excited about about their games. But every time, like I see uh, an image like with their mockups and the design and everything, it just always looks nice. And you can you can clearly see that people are just really excited to design for these things. One of the ones, uh, so, and I've seen some learn from it. Like, uh, I am 8 bit did a release for Res yeah. that was kind of shit. Oh, really? Uh, with, uh, it was okay, but I mean, they had the big, like, logo, like, VR logo on the front, uh, yeah. and yeah. there was some printing issues, and it just wasn't high quality. But then the second time around, they did a retail release for Hyper Light Drifter, which is, it comes with a nice thick booklet. The art is beautiful. They didn't slap logos where there shouldn't be. And it just turned out to be an absolutely awesome release. And I'm really happy to have that. And so I can, you know, they're improving as well. And I just, I'm, I'm so happy to see all these companies that are starting to essentially go after that market. So, um, and yeah, obviously that applies in the music space as well. There's, you know, like Mondo and other companies in, in addition to Brave Wave are also like, you know, really focusing on delivering really high quality releases with like nice artwork and design and put effort into the LPs themselves when they, you know, release it in that format. And it's just awesome to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, uh, I just like stuff. I just like stuff where, um, 
it would make me instead of going to Wikipedia and just reading more about the people who made it, I could just see from the product itself and uh, just just like that that connection because sometimes it's difficult to develop a relationship with an author or a filmmaker or a designer and if you just give people if you just give them the tools for that which is just something as simple as a booklet it's a good way to have kind of like a fan base or a following because people like when people buy stuff they do want to like it more they do want to feel like they made the right decision by getting this thing and then when they open it and they see more stuff that they could just kind of relate to and, and develop a connection with it's just a really good thing and uh, of course i'm not not speaking just from a, a maker point of view designer point of view but also as a person who buys these things yeah and exactly just want to be just consumed by them they just just love the feeling of opening uh, a Criterion Collection movie and seeing how every booklet is just specifically designed for this movie, the typeface and everything, and uh, it's just it's just really, really nice. It's just good good, good to be, to, to have even video games reaching that stage where the soundtracks and the games themselves are just uh, as good as they should be, packaging-wise. So I think I think we reached the end of the episode, and um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Robocake at Robocake. And John, what's where, where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at Dark One X, or go over and check out YouTube da- YouTube.com slash Digital Foundry for all of our stuff over there. And uh, you, all, you you do that, or on Eurogamer. <laughs> you do all the retro stuff, the retro stuff, and also other stuff as well on that. Yes, bike. Yeah, 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 I do a lot of stuff on there as well. But yep, the DF Retro series, I just released episode 30 of that this past weekend, and I've been doing it on my own since the beginning. So I do appreciate all the support there because it's kind of a passion project on the side. Absolutely. So thanks. It was good having you here with me. John, good to be here. Um, uh, uh, I just, I, 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 I had this itch in me. I really wanted to talk about all this uh, nonsense with the uh, laptops and GPUs and CPUs. <laughs> yeah. And I know you'd be the perfect guy because you and I have been talking about these things for a while. And exactly. I actually just, just, just realized that we didn't even touch on the monitor aspect because I am the market for a 4K monitor. But that, that would be a discussion for it's another, another time. time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, thanks for coming here, uh, John. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, I hope to record another one soon. I have no idea what the subject will be, but I know I want to have an episode with Marco uh, about Ninja Gaiden and how we got to make this release, basically, what, what, what restoration methods he used. Uh, uh, we were waiting for the vinyl to ship and now that it's almost shipping i think the next episode might be that so thanks for listening and uh, see you next time